0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us breath, To worship your holy name we celebrate independence freedom liberty but lord don't don't let us forget to hold tight to the obligations we have to love one another to bear each other's burdens lord we boldly proclaim our love for you with all of our hearts and strength and now god let us love with that same love our neighbors our communities our families um, in boldness i ask today that you provide rest this weekend you provide rest Help us find comfort from the hustle and bustle of our lives, knowing that you reign powerfully in us and around us. Father, fill our lives with your grace. God, provide supernatural rest that gives our souls restoration. As we study your word, fill us with insight and courage, especially when it's hard and when life um, fills us with chaos. And Lord, we, we just need your spirit to rule over that chaos in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I want to make a bold statement. The bold statement is this, that too many of us, way too many of us have given up on relationships with family members. Or, or too many of us have resigned ourselves to settle for dysfunctional relationships with people. Let, let me give you an example. Um, absentee family, right? There, there are times and occasions where that person is there But for the most part, you cannot rely on that person. They're just not around. They're not available. Maybe it's a relationship of abandonment. They've abandoned you and so you resigned yourself or they resigned themselves to not being able to commit to you, to not being able to trust you or you not being able to trust them. Maybe it's codependency. You're cleaning up other people's messes or they're cleaning up your messes. They're enabling or you're enabling addictions. You're making excuses. Maybe, maybe, maybe the relationships that we have, they're not that dysfunctional in our family. Maybe it's just simply bitterness or jealousy. And those attitudes of bitterness and jealousy, they control how you see other people, how you see their intentions, how it creates a bigger relational fracture than situations and circumstances deserve. Regardless, regardless of what it is, um, I, I think... You know, all of us can say that maybe we have a broken relationship or two in our midst. And if you're sitting here and you're looking at me and you're like, Jonathan, my life is not like that. My relationships are nicely manicured and they're perfect. They look better than your yard. Then you're more messed up than the rest of us, right? You're in denial. I mean, generally, that's just the truth, right? And I mean, when it comes to these toxic types of relationships, because we all have toxic relationships or aloof relationships, what we'll call it, right? We know that underneath all of that, there's chaos. And that chaos or that disorder, whatever you want to call it, um, if you leave it unchecked, it starts to eat us alive from the inside out. It starts to eat away at us. It starts to kill us softly. And so the effects of those bad relationships, um, they, they start to ooze out not only in our lives, but also in society. And we, we, we can all see that. We, we can all see glimpses of it. But When we do ask, when we ask God, God reign over that chaos, God take control of this relationship, we know, we know that God will give us restoration. We know that God will give us healing. We know He will bring reconciliation. And we know that because the truth is that God reigns over the chaos of our relationships. That's the truth of the matter. God reigns over the chaos of our relationships. And so um, I have a younger brother, not many of you, my staff didn't know until recently I had a younger brother. I don't, I don't talk about him much, right? Um, and it's not because I hate him. It's not because we're estranged. Um, I love my brother as much as any brother can, right? Um, it just happens. We, we only hang out. We only talk every leap year or so. And that's kind of how frequently he's actually in the country to talk and hang out and, you know, meet him, right? And so, um, you know, the, the biggest problem here is, you know what? We have an absentee relationship. That's just the truth, right? It's an absentee relationship. Um, yeah, we'll catch each other up on things every football season or so. You know, we'll, we'll talk about how his horrible football team's doing and talk about my horrible football team, right? But, but that's kind of it. That, that's the extent of it, right? And, and you know, we, we just allowed ourselves to just drift apart that way. That, that's just what happens, right? And, and so recently, Michelle said something to me that, that kind of caught my heart, and it was this. She said to me, you know, Jonathan, your daughters, Kate and Clara, they will never know their uncle Justin, if you don't intentionally do something about it. If you don't do something intentional about your relationship with your brother, they will never know their uncle. And so I, got, I started thinking, and I was like, you know what? If my brother were to come and put out his arms and say, hey, give me a hug, give your uncle Justin a hug, they would walk right by and say, you know what? That stranger kinda looks like my dad, but I don't know him, right? I mean, they, they, they'd go do a double take for a donut faster. I mean, that, that's just really what it is, right? Like, they, they would recognize that faster than they recognize their own flesh and blood. And, and therein lies a the disorder, right? That my flesh and blood would not recognize my flesh and blood. That's a problem. That, that, that's a huge problem, right? And, and I mean, when, when I think about it even more, because um, if we look at any of our relationships, right, what, what we begin to understand is that the chaos in our relationships They're really the lack of intentionality. The disorder that lies in our relationships, it's a lack of intentionality. We lack the intention to love them the way God loves us. So we allow jealousy, we allow bitterness, we allow abandonment, absenteeism, codependency to become the norm and define our relationships. And that disorder that subsequently ensues, that's what we're left with. That's what we're left with. So in a few months, and you can hold me accountable to this, right, ask me what I'm doing to intentionally include my brother in the lives of my kids. Because what God is teaching me through this text that we're going to look at, we're going to look at 13 chapters, um, is that God wants to reign in the chaos over my family so that the sins my parents made, not introducing me to my aunts and uncles because I never knew them, would not be repeated in the next generation. And, And God is going to show us that he is not only reigning over our relationships, but He's also faithful. He's also faithful. And my challenge to all of us here today is this. If we have broken relationships, would you give them over to God so that God can reign in them for his purposes, for his glory? And really, I want you to answer yes, I want to give up those relationships to God so he can reign over them. And you know what? If you're thinking, if you have doubts, how can I? They're so broken. They're so fractured. I want you to know that God can reign over relationships regardless of your family's chaotic condition, right? And this is what we've been trying to show you throughout this entire series. It doesn't matter how much chaos there is in your family. In In Genesis, when we start looking at the sins of Abraham, at the sins of God's chosen, we see how broken it is. And yet God still chooses them. Let's look at the slide. I want to show you the genealogy of Abraham, the chosen one of God, the father of our faith. So th- this is Abraham's family, and it's a, it's a little confusing, and I'm going to walk it through you um, with everybody. Abraham had a wife. Her name was Sarah, right? Um, Sarah was promised by God to give birth because she was barren for a very long time. Um, but that didn't happen. It didn't happen in the time frame that she wanted to happen, that Abraham wanted to happen. So what does Sarah do? Sarah says, Abraham, I'm going to give you my slave Hagar. Go sleep with her. She's going to bear a son, and she's going to produce offspring for you. And so Hagar has a son, Ishmael, all right? And that's great, except when Sarah gets pregnant herself, and then she has a son named Isaac. And so Isaac is born, and now Sarah, in in jealousy and fear, okay, in fear that her husband would actually do the right thing by taking care of Ishmael, the slave that they have, and their son, which is his son, would do the right thing by taking care of him, she kicks Hagar and her son out and says leave, right? And that's horrible, that's horrible, right? But, but she didn't want her son to share in the inheritance with a sibling. And so th- this is a problem, isn't it? This, this is chaos. And so what we do know, and this is not in there, Abraham has another wife after Sarah dies named Keturah. And Keturah has many other sons and children, right? Um, but he- here's what we know, what the Bible says about Keturah and her children, that Abraham sent them away, far away, so that Isaac wouldn't have any problems with them, right? And this is what it says in the Bible, right? It was a means for Isaac to inherit everything that God had given Abraham. So now Isaac is the guy. Isaac is the guy, and he marries Rebekah, which is great, fantastic. They have two kids, Esau and Jacob. Except, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Isaac and Rebekah commit the same sins that Abraham and Sarah did right? The the jealousy and the bitterness that, you know, that Abraham and Sarah had and that showed the favoritism that they were showing their kids, Jacob and, I'm sorry, Isaac and um, Rebecca were doing the same. Isaac liked Esau, right? He he was a man's man. He loved them, but Rebecca loved Jacob. And so under trickery and deception, um, Jacob ends up getting the, the blessing of the firstborn from his father, And so, yeah, that's all good. So what what that happens is it causes a rift in their family. It causes a rift so bad that Jacob had to run away to his uncle's house, Laban. Laban is Rebecca's brother. And so we now see that the sins of the fathers and the mothers are compounding against each other in this family, right? And so now Jacob, he's at his uncle's house and he falls in love with his uncle's second daughter, Rachel, right? Rachel's at the very end. She's in that green. And so Rachel, um, you know, he loved her. She was beautiful. He loved her. And he agrees with Laban. Hey, you know what? I will work for you for seven years to have your daughter Rachel's hand in marriage. And so Laban says, okay, you got a deal. Except seven years later, there's a marriage ceremony. And under more deception, Laban, what he does is he gives Jacob Leah instead, his first daughter. And you know, to, to kind of justify his deception, Laban says this. He says, you know, in, in my family tradition, right, they're all the same family, by the way, in my family's tradition, you don't let your second daughter get married before your first daughter, and justifies the whole thing, and he says, you know what, spend one week married to my first daughter Leah, and I will give you my second daughter for another seven years of marriage, for for work, right, and so a week later, Jacob, who wanted one wife, because he loved her, ends up with two wives in the span of a week, and he ends up being indentured as a servant to his uncle Laban for 14 years right? Great, great family, right? Great family dynamic, everybody agree? Um, And so Leah, right, being Jacob's first wife, bears Jacob his first four sons, right? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Wonderful, 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 right? That's great. Now Rachel, right, being married, being now the second wife in the family, she's jealous. She's jealous. She doesn't have any kids. So you know what she does? She gives her servant away, Billa, to be Jacob's wife and says, Jacob, husband, I'm going to give you another wife, right? Like, like that's going to make things better. And so Billa has two sons, Dan and Naphtali, right? And now Rachel is excited. She's great. She's like, oh, now my side of the family has two sons, right? Compared to the four that my sister has. But that brings Leah into sort of a, a, a jealous tizzy, right? She, she's afraid of losing her position. Now her sister's side has children. And so that makes her incensed, and that makes her angry. And so what does she do? She gives Jacob another wife, Zilpah, who's also Leah's servant, right? And so Zilpah has, a, has two sons, Gad and Asher. And so now, how many sons is that? That's eight sons, right? Eight sons, three wives. And so um, Leah, the Bible says, has two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun, and a daughter, Dinah, right? Um, and at their very end of you know, kind of, Jacob's kind of old now. They, they've had all these kids. Rachel, who was barren until this point, finally gives birth to Joseph and then Benjamin. And so this is a big family. This is a big family. He's still living with his uncle at his uncle's house. All right? Huge family, big uncle. And now Laban says, you know what? Now you got to leave. Get out. Get out of my house. Your family's too big, right? You're causing me too many problems. And so now Jacob has to reconcile with the fact that he stole away his brother's blessing. And so he goes and journeys back to the promised land. And so on his journey back, God renames Jacob to Israel. That's what his new name is. And so, um, but he, here's where it gets treacherous, right? Because Jacob, he, he's still living in the old way. And what he does is in descending order from the least favored child, To the least favorite wife, he puts them up front to meet Esau's army because Esau is now bringing 400 men to confront his brother coming back to the promised land, right? And so he he sends Zilpah and Bilah and their children first, and then Leah and her children after that, and then Rachel and her sons after that. And he stood all the way in the back and said, you know what? They're going to be fodder for me before my brother comes and kills me, right? That's how he went about this, right? This is what he did to to go about reconciliation. And so this is a messed up family right? We know what comes to pass is that Esau says, you know what, brother, you're a brother of mine. I forgive you. We're forgiven. Um, We're going to make things work. And so what ends up happening is they hug and then they go their separate ways. Great family, right? They, They leave once they got to that. But the bottom line is this, the children of Israel inherit all the dysfunction, all the dysfunction that his, their parents made and left for them. They inherit the dysfunction of their grandparents and the great-grandparents. And so the stories that we're going to look at today are going to look at specifically how that dysfunction operates and how God works through them. We're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 37, um, verse 9. We're going to see how the chaos unfolds in this generation of Israel's kids. Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. Then Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. And I want you to know, because we haven't read this part, that Joseph at the time is 17 years old. And he says to his brothers and to his parents, I have a dream. I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bound down to me. But when he told this to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept scaring. The saying in mind. I I want you to see this, right? We we saw that Joseph was the 11th brother. He is the baby brother. He is the oldest brother of the most beloved wife. And so I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you know what, this guy, Joseph, not only was he lacking in self-awareness, he he, he was also spoiled and preferentially treated. Wouldn't you all agree? I I think we would all have to agree. I mean, how else can you just share this narcissistic dream and say, you know what, brothers, you're all going to bow before me being the 11th son, right? I mean, th- this is what it takes, right? Um, y- do you start seeing how unintentional actions start impacting another generation? And so not too long after the dream, jo- Jacob says, you know what, Joseph, go check up on your brothers because I haven't heard from them in a while. And so what we also do- didn't read here is that Joseph is a narc, right? He tattles on his brothers. That's what he does, right? That's his job. That's, his, that's what, kind of what long- younger siblings do, I think. Um, and so, you know, Jacob says, you know, go, go, go figure out where they are and go tell me, bring them back a back report. And so, um, verse 18, now we're going to pick it up again. They, this is Joseph's brothers, um, saw Joseph from afar. And before he came near, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Great brothers, by the way. Um, But when Reuben heard it, Reuben is the oldest, by the way, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And the Bible says, this is an aside, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Reuben, being the oldest, should be the bearer of moral authority to his brothers, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you hope, right? He should know better, and he should do the right thing, right? And so he starts to do the right thing to protect his younger, silly kid brother from being killed in cold blood, but you know what he does and says? He actually slips. He slips and says, you know what? We shouldn't kill him, but you know, if we threw him into this little pit— He'll just die naturally, right? That, that's the implication here, right? You, why would we get our hands dirty? He could be in this pit where there is no water, so no one's going to come looking for him. We wouldn't be guilty of bloodshed. We wouldn't be guilty of murder, right? I mean, after all, being a murderer is a sin, isn't it? Right? And so, you know, the Bible says his intention was to redeem him. But, you know, isn't that funny how we let our relationships fester, our bad relationships fester, because we hope one day we're going to redeem those relationships? We hope one day those things will change, right? Intentionality only gets us so far. It's really the actions that we take behind those actions, behind that intention that changes things. Verse 25, then the brothers sat down to eat. Meanwhile, Joseph was starving in the pit. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. When their camels were bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah, the fourth brother, said to his brothers, what prophet is it? If we kill our brother and conceal his blood, right now they're trying to make a profit out of murder. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. (coughs) Excuse me. For he is our brother, our own flesh. Good for them, they recognize that. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt not many of our families would sell us as slaves, hopefully, right? But the fact that they consigned Joseph to a life of, a lifetime of hardship and eventual death and anonymity away from his family for two pieces of silver each, it just kind of shows you what kind of chaos is in this family, what kind of dysfunction is there. Verse 31, then... The brothers took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces to top off the fact that their brothers sold Joseph. They didn't have the galls. They didn't have the gall to tell their dad about the bad news. They didn't, have to, they didn't have the gall to lie to him to his face, right? His dad had to come to his own conclusion. Uh, I mean, just, just imagine how treacherous you have to be, right? How wicked you have to be. Uh, and I mean, this is how dysfunctional this family is. And so, you know what? It doesn't matter actually how dysfunctional it is because the outcome is all, always the same, right? Whether it's this, de- this degree of dysfunction or not, the outcome is you are hurt by them and they are hurt by you. That's what sinful relationships do, right? But the good news is that despite the sins committed against each other in a relationship, God still has providential control. God still has providential control. And let's pick up the story in chapter 39, verse one. "'Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, "'and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, "'the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, "'had bought him from the Ishmaelites, "'who had brought him down there. "'The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. "'And he was in the house of his Egyptian master.' His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that, he had, all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in the sight and attended him. And he made him an overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From that time that he had made him an overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. This is a low point in Joseph's life. Until now, he was the favorite child. He was the beloved baby boy, daddy's baby boy. Now he's a slave. He actually has to work for a living. He, he is a slave. He, he has nothing. He's working for someone else. He's not earning anything. And so, but interestingly enough, God still has providential control and he shows up in Joseph's life. And you would think because God is being blessing, fooling Joseph with blessing, you would think that Joseph's life would go up from there, but it doesn't. Potiphar had a promiscuous wife. And so from day one, Potiphar's wife has been trying to sleep with Joseph because he was a handsome young man. And so he would run away from her every single time, run away, run away, run away. And eventually she got tired of it. She lost. And so in an act of revenge, what does she do? She frames him. She accuses him of sexually assaulting her. And you know what? Potiphar, in his anger, throws Joseph in jail. And so now Joseph went from dreamer, beloved son, to slave, now to convict. Verse 20, let's pick it up. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made succeed. And when God puts his hand on you, and I want us to see this, right? He doesn't take his hand off you regardless of the circumstances and the place we are in life, right? There is no shaking God. There is no getting rid of his favor. His steadfast love is always on us because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, That's what we have when we believe, right? Because even though the circumstances of our lives say we're an outcast, that we're enslaved, that we're in prison, God's hand is still on us because through Jesus Christ as our Savior, it makes us a beloved child of God, highly favored by God. That's what we see here. It's a foreshadowing of what, what comes in the New Testament. And so if you are in a low point in your life because of circumstances coming from broken relationships, know that God has providential control. God will bless us in our humiliation, and in our setbacks for his purposes, right? He blesses us as a means to open doors for ministry. Ministry is just a fancy word to say purpose. That's all what ministry is, right? It's the purpose. The purpose is our ministry, God's purposes, right? Our purpose is to be a blessing to others because God's favor is on us. And he is blessing us with his steadfast love. How many people in this world can say that God's steadfast love is on them? Only people who put their trust in Jesus can, right? And the reason, the reason, the purpose, that blessing is on our life is so that it can be poured out from our lives in excess to the lives of people around us. That is our ministry, right? That, that's the reason we keep encouraging you. Join life groups, give, serve, right? Because all of you who've done these things know that when you step into these opportunities, the people on the other side receiving them are so blessed by them. There's joy in that. There's greatness in that, right? So we have to make it a priority to to minister the blessings of God and fulfill the purposes God has for you in your life, regardless of where you are or where you feel you are, humiliated or set back or not, right? We need to step out and do this in faith. This is exactly what Joseph is doing here in prison. We're going to see this, right? Joseph, he had to go to prison. And the reason he had to go to prison is because an opportunity came for him to minister to the Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and the Pharaoh's chief Baker, right? And so they both have dreams. They both have dreams, and they were thrown into prison. We don't know why, but you know what Joseph did? He purposefully and intentionally blesses those guys while they're in prison. Um, He says to these guys, this is what he says, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Tell me your dreams. And these guys each had dreams, and Joseph interprets these dreams, and he ministers to them using what he has in faith. We're going to go to chapter 41. Um, Two years passed since Joseph interprets Pharaoh's cupbearer's dream. And he basically says to Pharaoh's cupbearer, you're going to live. Pharaoh's going to restore you. But to the chief baker, he says, you're going to hang in three days. And he does. And so now, two years later, Joseph is still rotting away in prison. And the cupbearer has forgotten about him. And now Pharaoh has two dreams of his own. And all the magicians and the wise men of Egypt couldn't interpret it. And that reminded the cupbearer and said, hey, I remember this guy in prison. His name was Joseph. Verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Don't you love how the Bible refers to jail as the pit, right? It refers to prison as the pit the same way it referred to the place that the brothers threw Joseph when they were trying to kill him, right? That's what prisons do. That's what pits do. They, they kill. And so when Joseph had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I have had it said that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so he was innocent, Joseph, but he was imprisoned. And yet he ministered. He ministered not because he had the ability, not because he had anything, but because he had faith and because God is faithful because he remembers God is faithful regardless of how faithless we are, right? And so when God is faithful to us, when God is faithful to those who he loves and chooses, we get to experience Christ's redeeming work. That's the good news. That's the good news. That's the good news, right? When we admit the fact that we need Jesus because like Joseph, we're living in a pit, imprisoned by the penalties of our sin, imprisoned by the chaos of our relationships, God faithfully redeems us through his son, Jesus Christ, right? We're redeemed because Jesus receives the punishment for our sins in his death on Calvary. Our sins, past, present, and future, are poured on him. And Jesus pays the price that we couldn't pay. And when he dies, he dies, taking those sins with him. And on the third day, God raises Jesus from the dead. And in Jesus' resurrection, we have hope that the chaos of our lives will not define us. It will not be the end of us. But we will be heirs, that we are heirs in God's kingdom. And that's good news. I want you to see how God redeems Joseph's life. Because Joseph not only interprets Pharaoh's dreams, but the Spirit of God allows Joseph to give Pharaoh a plan of action that is tangible, that blesses an entire nation. Verse 37. This proposal that Joseph gave pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? In whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Joseph's dream is starting to come true. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. You see, all the low points that Joseph endured, it gave him the ability to become more than a dreamer, but an actual doer, right? Christ's redemption is no more evident than in a time like this. It's because God is providentially in control that this type of outcome is possible, right? Joseph is not redeemed for his sake, but for God's glory. Joseph, he goes from hated teenage brother, slave, convict, and now he's the governor of Egypt. But Christ is not done redeeming Joseph's life. You see, a lifetime later, God is still faithful, and he's about to bring healing to the family of Israel, right? He's about to bring reconciliation. Just as Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, there was seven years of plenty in the land. And now the seven years of famine from Pharaoh's dream is starting to begin. And this is where Joseph's estranged family entered the picture. He spent more than half his life dead to his family. His family dead to him. And now go to verse, or chapter 45. We're gonna pick it up in verse three. Joseph says to his brothers upon this meeting, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were still dismayed at his presence. So he said to his brothers, Come near to me. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do you not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house, and ruler of all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your households and all that you have do not come to poverty. The families finally reconciled because God reigns over the chaos of their relationships through Christ's redeeming work in our lives, in his life, right? For the first time in Abraham's saga, the blessings of God flow to each and every son in its fullness, no longer choosing one way or another, right? This is the nation of Israel. And all of this happens because God is faithful, because God reigns in the chaos of relationships. Genesis ends in chapter 50. In Genesis chapter 50, Israel, Jacob, he passes away. And his brothers are still worrying about retaliation. After all, they sold them into slavery, sold them off to die. But Joseph's response shows us that Christ's redemption changes a person from the inside out. He responds in verse 19, and he says this, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Family, God wants to reign over the chaos of our relationship for his purposes. And Jesus already proved on the cross that his glory will not be denied. Are you ready to give the chaos of your relationships over to him so that he can reign in them? If yes, do not wait. Do not tarry. Christ's redeeming work is available to you and to your relationships right now. Choose Jesus to reign in your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you reign in the chaos of our relationships and I pray over our broken relationships, bring us healing. Some of us are living in pain. Some of us are living with hurt. Some of us, we're oozing with trauma and God, we need your comfort. We need you now more than ever. Bring us the peace of your redemption. God, the hate, the jealousy or whatever other sinfulness that causes us to be separated from you, Lord. I ask that you remove it from our lives. Reign in our lives. Reign in our love. God, there are some today who need to choose you for the first time. Let this be the moment that they choose your son in faith. Let them come to you confessing that they need you. And God, give them assurance that you will not forsake them, that you will never leave them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org to introduce yourself today.